crazy. So he goes and he's speaking to them and he said, man, you guys are really inspiring me. He says, I've never spoken and really been around burn victims. And then he kept on speaking. Someone came up afterwards and said, excuse me, Mr. Gutzer, we don't refer to ourselves as victims. We refer to ourselves as survivors. Welcome to another episode of Plain Injured. I am sitting here with a speaker, leadership and communication coach and a best-selling author, uh, Mike Acker. I appreciate you coming on. Hey, it's great to be here, Josh. Looking forward to talking with you and providing some value for your listeners today. Totally. And I appreciate that. Now, I'm also excited to kind of unpack your story um, as well, because you have a you have a crazy upbringing. But first, uh, <laughs> we'd love to start off by asking you. Um, who you are today and how you spend your time today. Yeah. So I am communication coach, speaker, author. Those really are the three things that I do. So I'm speaking from my house. And so I have family come in here and my, my son will come visit and talk to the people I'm talking with. Sometimes I do a little stage right over here so I can do those presentations. Just gave a large one this week. A lot of time I'm just writing. So I'm working on my next book. I'm working on the next book. I'm working on the next book after that. And I help other people as well. And then a lot of times right here in front of the camera, talking to people and helping them organize their thoughts so they can really succeed in a professional realm. So really those three words sum up what I do, speaking, coaching, and writing. I love it. I love it. And you talk a lot about no fear. So you two books that you have, first of all, best-selling book, congrats on that. Speak yeah, with no fear. And then you also have lead with no fear. So Talking about no fear, what actually causes that in leadership, yes. in communication? What have you seen kind of the root cause of that? It's often when you look at all the potential negative instead of the positive. So mm. think about it like this. You're, you want to go up and you want to jump off a cliff with some friends into the water. Why do you do that? Because everybody else is doing this. So if somebody says, hey, Josh, come on, let's, let's go climb up this cliff over here. We're going to jump into the water. And as you wow. get up there, you're all excited because your friends are doing it. And so it's a fun thing to do, you're thinking. And then the moment you get up to this 40-foot cliff, you look down. And all of a sudden, your mind processes the risk. And fear mm -hmm. is often associated with the risk, the risk of what could happen. Oh, my gosh, I, that's a big jump. What if I fall wrong? What if I, what if I pass out? What if I drown? What if someone lands on top of me? What if there's rocks underneath there? What if there's sharks underneath there? I mean, what... And we think about all the potential negative that could be there. And that's often what happens when people are thinking about leading and they think about all the risks. Well, what if people don't like me? What if I get rejected? What if I do it, but then I fail? What if, name the bad scenario. Same with speaking. What if it's like that one time when I was in junior high and I spoke and everybody made fun of me? What if I forget what I'm saying? What if I come across like a fool? What if I don't add enough value? What if, what if, fill in the negative. Fear often comes from our view of the negative possibilities instead of the possibilities for incredible outcomes like the adrenaline rush, the memories, the fun of the moment, the feel of the air and then the water from jumping into the water from the cliff. That's the same in business. It's the same in personal life. We're looking at the negative and fear keeps us away. Right. And this has been a common thing for me. 
you either look at the positive of who can I help versus what are they going to say about me if I portray this message, right? And so that has been the different perspectives of actually creating some action and taking steps towards where I want to go. So I love that. I love that you put that on the head. I love that. So talk about small strategies on how to actually kind of change your perspective and kind of help you conquer the fear of leadership, the fear of, of communication, and then those emotions, right? You can still get nervous still, but how do you kind of conquer those emotions as well? Yeah, absolutely. So often what we have going in life is that we need to make small shifts instead of huge leaps. And that's so often people are thinking, man, if I got to lead, I got to become this. And it's a whole different, if I got to speak, I got to be this. And we're jumping far, far, far ahead of what we actually need to do. Back when I was a kid, there was this movie called What About Bob? And the whole idea about Bob is he's this guy who can't leave his house. Bill Murray plays it. Hilarious. And the whole idea is baby steps. Just take the next step. Just take the next step. So if anybody's listening and you haven't watched What About Bob? It's a classic of the 90s, which are trending right now. <laughs> go back and watch. <laughs> so much of my coaching just comes from that movie. Baby steps, baby steps. But in, in speaking... There's some small things that you can do and start working on in mindsets that you can embrace in leading. There's small shifts that you can take that will get you in a whole different direction. So with, with my book, Speak with, no, Speak with No Fear, I talk about several different strategies. And the idea is really it's a pick and choose. Which one is good for you? Which of these strategies? Some people say all seven. Some people say, well, you know what? There's only two strategies that were relevant to me. Great. Whatever it is, pick that and hold on to that. For example, one of the strategies I talk about, this is a small thing, is get to know the people that you're talking to before mm-hmm. you talk to them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really work in a one-way communication like I'm talking right here to your audience. I don't know them. But I do put myself in the thought of who am I speaking to? Okay, plain injured. These are people who are wanting to succeed, but there's some hurts in their life. Who are some people like that? Who am I? And now I can come up with an avatar, kind of an idea of who I'm speaking to, not the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Who am I speaking to? Okay. Okay. Now I know who I'm speaking to. I'm speaking Mm. to Tony. Okay. I'm speaking to Susan. Okay. Now I know these are people who have this happen in their life. But if you're in a real life situation where you're able to, or in person situation, then if you can get to know some people, then when I'm speaking to all, I'm still able to really extrapolate what I understood about meeting with that person beforehand. And now I'm not speaking to an audience of 3,000 or 20. I'm speaking to a small group. For example, what happened during that time that I was writing that book, one of my clients said she had to go give a sales pitch to 30 jerks, 30 idiot guys who are just so concerned with their money. And I thought to myself, so you just said these guys are blanket state stereotyped them as this type of person. But I said, who do you know in that group? She goes, well, I guess there's Tyler. Well, tell me about Tyler. And just diving into understanding, okay, I don't want you to talk to 30 idiot guys. I want you to talk to Tyler. And when you speak to one as if you're, or speak to all as if you're speaking to one, it breaks down that crowd mentality of, oh my gosh, what are all they going to think about me? And now you're just thinking about 
how can you help Tyler? So many of these strategies are small things that you can do, but if you do them, they actually work. It's like, it's like working out. Right. Working out, you don't go from being unable to even lift 20 pounds to benching 400 pounds. Never. No one's ever done that. Small steps. Small steps. Small yeah. steps. Small steps. 20, and then you're 25, and you're 30, and then moving up, moving up, moving up. And in athletics, you, you never get to the end right away. You have to work along the way. It's exactly the same as speaking. And if you think of speaking like athletics, you start going, oh, okay. There's things I could do every day or at least every week that will get me to that spot. I can work on my skills. I can work on my message. I can work on overcoming these mentalities. In fact, if you're a runner, take that same thought and apply it to your speaking. Because when you're running, oh man, you know how this is, Josh, right? You're running, and about a couple miles in, uh, whenever it is for different people, you just hit the wall. Yes. And you just think, you're just going to die, right? You're right. Like, shoot me now. Mine has came soon now, sooner than it used to be. <laughs> yeah. 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 My friend's like, oh, yeah, that always happens to me at mile 20. I'm like, mile 20? Right. I've never even seen mile 15. <laughs> How about mile two? Right. <laughs> Yeah. It's amazing though. What happens is you push yourself through that wall, whatever that wall is for you. If Mm -hmm. you're a runner, you know what it's like to push yourself through the wall or any other sports. You push yourself through that, that moment of breaking that moment of wanting to quit, Mm -hmm. take that same mentality, that same belief, that same drive and apply it in, in, in speaking and communication. I gave that to one person who was a big runner and it was like the light bulb went on. It's like, Oh, so he didn't have to do anything major. He just had to take this subtle shift in his thinking. So I go through seven of those strategies. And then I took the same approach in the lead with no fear. Yeah. That if you want to get to be that leader, and often we have an idea of the leader we want to be like. We've had a boss. We've had a pastor. We've had a sports coach. We want to be like that person. Mm-hmm. And so we will go from where we are wherever we are, you know, we're at five, step five, and that person's at step 80. And we're like, how do I jump to 80? And you don't, you take subtle shifts. And so really the book is not about what a leader does, but who a leader is. How do you switch from being a victim to a leader? That's the first shift, man, Josh, and you've seen this a lot, right? In sports, so many people, they even get injured and injured yep. in life. And then all of a sudden it becomes, look what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Look at my life. Look how I crashed. Look what they did to me. And all of a sudden there's a woe is me pity party. And they're inviting people to join instead of saying, no, no, I, I'm getting through this. I got this. I can do this. So in the book, my, my co-author and I, we talk about the story where Steve, my co-author went to speak at a burn camp. Can you imagine? I mean, these are people with <laughs> 70 to 90% of their body burn. Some of them, man, just crazy. So he goes and he's speaking to them and he said, man, you guys are really inspiring me. He says, I've never spoken and really been around burn victims. And then he kept on speaking. Someone came up afterwards and said, excuse me, Mr. Gutzer, we don't refer to ourselves as victims. 
Wow. We refer to ourselves as survivors. Wow. Yeah. That is that is crazy. Light bulb moment. Light bulb. So moment we talk for sure. about this shift from thinking about what was me to okay, this happened. It's real. And sometimes we gotta mourn that death. We gotta mourn that situation. But we're going to move over to this leader mentality where I'm not going to let that hold me back. I'm not going to be pulled back by that, that victimhood. I'm going to move forward. And if you think through any of the major agents of change in our society, you'll see that they were people who refused to be victims, even though they could have thrown that party. They decided they were going to be leaders like Nick Vujicic. He was born with no limbs, no limbs. He's got a wife and three kids and a thriving business. It's all about the mind, the huh? Yeah, wow. all about the mind. And he talks wow. about that. He says that. Now, I have all four limbs, so I can't use that story. <laughs> right. <laughs> but there's been other things that I could say, woe is me. And we all wow. have them. A hundred percent. So let's go into that. Because yeah. your childhood is really what alarmed me. Uh, kind of like, hey, I need to get this guy on my podcast. I need to hear his story. Um, yeah. And you have a unique one. So I would love to to actually talk about those because we go through pain and we come out yeah. survivors. We come yeah. out better. We become right. who we are today, not just getting there. We actually become it through years. Right. So we'd yeah. love to hear your upbringing and how you became who you are today. Right. Well, one of my favorite ways to start a motivational speech that I do when I go and speak to groups is I like to walk up on the stage, pause, and then I'll say, my dad was a drug dealer. My mom was a witch. I became a pastor. That's where the story starts. My dad had a dad who never once told my dad that he was loved. So my dad had to invent this whole parenting thing. He met my mom. She was the eighth of nine kids. And she was kind of this whole transcendental meditational journey and running away from a boyfriend who wanted to kill her. So they met. And those are my parents. <laughs> like that's the raw essence of greathood right there. <laughs> but they had some radical choices that they made when I was about four, and one was to get out of the drug dealing business. Yeah. So they went from from being an entrepreneur in the drug space to an entrepreneur in the coffee space, and they changed the course by the choices that they made. They also became Christians. And during that time, they decided not just to be the type of Christian who just goes to a church or just, just becomes political. They decided they'd be the type of people who really wanted to do the things they saw Jesus do. So Jesus served the poor. And so they got really involved and took the Bible very literally. So we were taking care of widows and we were helping AIDS victims back in the 1980s. We were going to nursing homes. Well, we smuggled Bibles into China when I was five. Wow. <laughs> the Bibles were under my clothes. <laughs> I, could, I could have gone to jail <laughs> in, in China in 1985. It's a different China back then. It is. Right. And, but my parents were just like, no, we're doing this. These people need this. This really helped us. We need to give this to others. And then at 10, my parents left the normal life that my, they had built. My dad had become a lawyer. And we went down to Mexico. And in Mexico, I was immersed into a culture that wasn't mine. So if you ever know what it's like to be the odd man out, yeah. then I got a chance to experience that. 
up to that point, I had seen bits and pieces of it when I was in China, for example, but nothing like this. So my parents decide to take me up on this idea that I had that I needed full immersion. So they say, Mike, let's take you to a school and you can finish out your fifth grade the last three months and you can finish it out in this, this Mexican school. And I thought, great, my friend did that. Let's do it. But my friend went to a private school. I went to an inner city Mexican school where most of these kids had never, ever seen a white person close up, never <laughs> actually met an American. And American TV was not, was not popular at that point in time. It was hard to get. And movies were about six months behind oh, from wow. getting from the United States to Mexico on the two cinemas that were there. So immerse me in. And I'm as white as white could be at the time. I had blight, blonde, white hair, long like a surfer, tall, gangly, weird, awkward, buck teeth like crazy, blue eyes. And I walk into the school, right? And the whole school like pauses like, what in the world? That's what I was like. Could you speak the language? What was that like? It was- no, I could speak no language, nothing at all. <laughs> I walk in and <laughs> literally everyone's looking at me like I am a ghost. And I mean, I was white kid walking into the school. Right. And, and so we walk in and my dad spoke Spanish because remember he was a drug dealer. So he had learned how to speak Spanish to cut out the middleman. He'd also learned how to pl- fly planes to cut out the middleman. So he goes and he goes, Mike, you just stay here. I'm going to go talk to the principal and see if we can get you in the school. So he goes in, he's a lawyer. He's talking him up. Right. He has a great call. The whole school, gets out of class to surround me. I back up against the wall and I'm thinking, what is happening right here? I'm in like baggy run DMC. That's who I listened to back in the day. <laughs> run DMC. I'm in run DMC inspired clothes in, in, in this Mexican school. The whole school surrounds me, like 600 people, right? Teachers as well. There's a 20 foot bubble and they would send emissaries to come up and touch me. And they touch me and then run away. And they're like, what's your name? And then run away. What's your name? Run away. So I just sat there going, Mike, Mike, Mike. In my mind, my dad had said, if you don't like it, you don't have to stay here. I'm like, I am not staying here. My dad gets out. He goes, all right, Mike, I'll pick you up at two. And then he leaves. And someone comes over my hand and like leads me into a classroom, sits me down. Some girls are sitting on my lap. And I'm like, it's cootie time, right? I'm like, get away from me. What are you doing? (laughs) The janitor climbs up the mango tree outside of the classroom and starts picking mangoes and like throwing them into the classroom. And we're eating mangoes. And, you know, I'm used to like clean them off, cut them up nicely. No, no, no. We just bite into it, spit it off into the ground of the (laughs) inner city school. Okay, that year... Those three months felt like ever. I was so nervous going to school the next day because I would get dropped off and then I'd have to wait, make my way out of school back over to the bus and then take the bus that you could see slats of wood and see the ground beneath you on the way home. Every single day, people staring at me. I wouldn't make myself sick just so that I didn't have to go to school. Mm. And, and often my parents would take me and I'd be like, like psychosomatic sickness. That was a tough year. I begged my dad to make us move, to let us leave, leave and go home. Next year, my parents switched me to a little bit better of a school. It was just a little bit, it was a little bit beyond what I could do. And honestly, looking back, it was 
great people, very nice, just way beyond my comfort zone. You couldn't handle it at the time. Yeah. No, no. And then this is a little lesson for all of us in this. When something goes bad, we start looking back. Mm -hmm. And I started looking back. So I started looking back at my comfortable life in the United States going, that was a life. So instead of seeing that we were three blocks away from the beach, that that there was so much good that was going on and I was learning a culture so much more. I started seeing America through these amazing lenses. And so I started looking at the rear view mirror. Well, you know how it is when you're looking through the rear view mirror, you miss out on where you're actually going. Yeah. So the next year there were some difficulties in sixth grade and there's some bullying that went on. A couple of kids tried to pick fights with me and come back to that. There was a moment actually there in sixth grade where I was walking in the streets at night going from a friend's house or acquaintance's house back home. I can't remember where I was going, but I started having rocks fall next to me. People started cussing me out and saying all kinds of awful swear words at me. And the rocks are falling around me. And I just knew in that moment. I mean, these are dark streets. There's the houses around us were closed up. And I, I remember thinking, if I run, I'm done. <laughs> if I run, I'm done. So I just had to walk. And total fear just kept on walking for blocks upon blocks upon blocks upon blocks. Those kind of situations led me to think, I got to get back to the United States. Yeah. So my parents let me for two months move back to the United States and stay with a family after summer. We stayed a summer and then went to eighth grade. But you know what? When you look back and then you go back, it's not the same. It's not the same. Right. It's not. So I went back and it was my bubble was burst. I had this amazing idea of what it was going to look like. And who knows? Maybe if my whole family had moved back and all that, who knows? Maybe. But it wasn't as good. I mean, Washington in the winter is rainy and cold. <laughs> and Mazatlan, Mexico is sunny and beachy. So after those two months, I moved back to Mexico. And that's when I started embracing it. But just because you embrace what's happening to you doesn't mean it's still easy. And that's when the bullying started pick up. And so I think one of the things that you're talking about is there was a day about a, actually about a year in my schooling where every single day I would show up and a senior would cuss me out from about eighth grade through ninth grade. And almost every single day, I mean, sometimes I could avoid him, but the first thing I met was a guy who was three years, four years older than me, cussing me out like, you effing idiot, you effing don't belong here, you effing gringo. And I did everything I th could think about. I told the teachers. I went with friends past him. I tried to befriend him. Like, I paused and said, you know, bustered all the energy. Hi, I'm Mike. I'm not effing saying hi to you, you effing idiot. It was just going off on me, right? And I'm trying to, like, meet his friends. His friends are like polite and actually saying hi to me and then laughing and all the girls that would be around it. And so this became the spectacle to wait for Mike at the top of the stairs and everybody knew what happened. Everybody just kind of ignored it. And I just have to go past it every single day. Well, when you hear that you're an effing idiot and you're effing worthless and you're effing no good and you effing should go back home uh, every single day. And then in the midst of all the other stuff that's going on at that season of life, those external influences change your internal mindset. Yeah, I was going to ask, how did that make you feel? How did that make you perceive yourself, your self-image, right. your self-worth? How did it affect that? Right. 
it really starts getting inside me. So what I would do is I'd go home and I listen to Pearl Jam because I graduated from Run DMC to alternative depressing music. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, man. and so I'd go back and I would listen to the, the song by Pearl Jam black and, and indifference, you know, how much difference does it make? So here I am listening to people who, well, Nirvana, Kurt Cobain committed suicide not too long after I was listening to this. And I'm listening to these depressing songs and disarm me with a difference by smashing pumpkins. because I'm letting all this in. Now, nowadays I do listen to those music. I have them on the record right behind me, but, but back then I'm listening to it when I'm coming home, tired, exhausted. It was also in ninth grade that uh, there was a group of guys who wanted to beat me up, but the senior couldn't beat me up because, well, that'd be bad. So he orchestrated a fight with me and someone in his class. And we went and it was old school, kind of like that. Hey, let's meet in a, in a circle and everybody surrounds you. So we get out there. And as I'm walking up to him, this is stupid me. I had my hands in my pocket. Don't ever, ever go to a fight with your hands in the pocket. <laughs> so I'm going up there because I'm thinking like they're going to say, all right, go fight. Right. But you never <laughs> see like anybody going in the ring with their hands in their pocket. So I'm in the hands in the pocket and he jumps forward and, and like without warning, the fight had started, punches me, stupid me. That was an idiot. But I re reach back, I was a little bit bigger than him. So I get him, I get him in the temple. Just He starts reeling. So I go after him to punch him again. And all of those guys, including the senior, pull me off of him. So I'm like, okay, now we're back to square one. Now my arms are up, no hands in the pocket this time, right? right. My hands are up, I'm ready. <laughs> we go at it again. It was not my, my first fight. So he goes after it again, we're, we're hitting, he gets me in the eye, I get him and I jump him. I get on top of him, I start punching him just like an MMA, right? Just punching him in the kidney, get, get old, you know, nothing like, <laughs> just go for it. And they come and pull me off him again. And that's when I realized if I win, I still lose. Mm. And that wow. was that whole year. Like, if I win, I still lose. And no matter how good I go, I can't, I can't win. I remember that at one point in time, uh, he offers, like, hey, you want to call it, want to call it off? I'm like, yeah, because there's no good way for me to win. He was having a hard time walking at that point. But I was bleeding all over my nose and stuff. And I remember I get home and uh, my dad was a little bit absent during this time in my life. He was very involved in the his work and very involved in mission work at feeding kids and not seeing that his own kid was starving for attention. Mm -hmm. And I got home and I laid on, on the bed with probably a concussion. Right. And my dad comes home and he sees my school uniform. At this point I went to a private school and it's just bloodied, torn, big, huge black eye on my right eye. And, and he says, Mike disappointed in you. To hear your dad say he's disappointed, he gets emotional even now. My dad and I have a great relationship. But at that moment, he says, I don't want you ever get in a fight. Like, okay, good, dad. Thanks. I didn't want to get in a fight. I had nothing to do with this fight. I didn't want to get in this fight. But if you do get in a fight, you don't leave till someone can't get up. I'm like, cool, cool. Thanks, dad. Appreciate that. <laughs> Let me just pass out right here. That so much epitomized that season of life. All of that comes crashing in. I'm struggling with that. You asked about mindset. We came back to the United States that summer and I went to a camp and they asked every single person to meet with a counselor for an hour. 
just something they did for the 300 people at this camp. And it was a really expensive camp that some of my parents' friends sent me to. Really cool place, amazing place, and amazing amenities and amazing services like this counseling. So the counselor's hearing my story, and, and she says this to me, vital, life-changing words. She says, I want you to look at yourself in the mirror every single day and say, I like you. She told me some other things like that, right? And basically what we now know is affirmations. So I thought, that's stupid. <laughs> like that's, I was a basketball player and a soccer player. I'm not some guy who's going to sit in the front of the, the mirror and go, I like you. You're good looking. <laughs> Who do you think I am? <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But she had really pushed me on it. So I started standing in front of the mirror. And I started saying, it was so hard at first. I, <laughs> Mike, I like you. You're worth <laughs> I'm like, oh man, this is so stupid, so <laughs> sappy. But I did it. And I did it. And more than just doing the affirmations, it was like teaching myself that I could choose the soundtrack in my head. I could choose what I was going to play, both realistically through my CDs or my tapes back then. <laughs> and through what I could choose to put in my head. So that was a huge turning point in my life where I chose to move from essentially that victimhood. And I write about that in my book a little bit from that victimhood to that leader. I'm going to lead my thoughts, not to be a victim of my thoughts. And that's something I've done throughout the years. And I've done affirmations now off and on for the last 20 years. I'm a huge believer in 100%. telling yourself the truth. hundred percent. You have to. Yeah. You have to, you because yeah. it's so much negative on an everyday basis, especially now yeah. social media, everything. It's hard to control. You you literally can't block yourself from not seeing negative. So you have to have that anchor of positivity on yourself, uh, and the things you listen to, and the people you spend yep. your time with, and the books you read. All that has an effect on your mindset and that positivity. Yeah. Absolutely. That's why listening to Plain Injured with Josh. <laughs> so good. In, in, read, in reading, speak, in reading, speak with no fear and, and lead with no fear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, shameless promotion right there. But it is so true that what you're listening to is so vital and be careful. And so in, in the books, Lead with No Fear, we talk about choose your news and choose your source, to choose, yeah. choose your surrounding because you are a combination of everything that's happening around you. So, so much during that time, there was so much negativity that I was allowing myself to be, be filled up with. But at that point, I started making this shift and I came back and I embraced my life in Mexico. Not only did I, my first shift was that no longer am I going to be looking through the, the rear view mirror, but then I, I kind of was just settling in. And then I made this radical adoption of the life in Mexico and the people of Mexico I made some of the best friends I've ever had, friends I'm still friends with today. I, I, didn't, I didn't tolerate culture. I loved the culture. I didn't see them as a different group of people, like the story I did at the beginning. I always feel a little bit bad telling that story because it almost looks like I looked down on it. And really much at the time, I did. But now, I, mean, I love Mexico. I love Mexican people. I love the chance to speak in Spanish. By the time I left Mexico, I was more Mexican in terms of culture than I was American. 
I remember one time in my junior year, we went out to this, this bar because <laughs> you can go to the bars when you're 16. And, and we went to this bar and it was all for Mexicans. And so they're all, all guys and girls from Mexico, right? So we're going in and they say, uh, hey, this is not a tourist place. You, you can't come here. They turned to me and right. said that because I had this long blonde hair trying to be like Kurt Cobain. And, and my friends turn and say, no, 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 he's more Mexican than any of us. And I was like, all right, come on in. And I, and I love that, that story because it really, it really helps me remember how much I adopted and embraced and loved being in Mexico with really plans to never leave. They ended up changing. But if you were to take this and take this as a life principle for anybody here listening, I would go back and say at the beginning, be careful of creating yourself as an other find the value in the people you're talking to and the people you're working with and the people in your neighborhood and the people around you. Be careful of looking back because you will miss out on the future. Be careful of the things that you're thinking and letting yourself think and find ways to identify find ways to relate. My wife and I just moved again. We just moved from Seattle to Fairhope, Alabama, big, big culture shift in a lot of ways. And I'm having to think through and embrace and apply those principles on a daily basis, sometimes more winning, sometimes more losing, because often we want to create others. We want to create that distinction when really we need to lean in, become more of that than what we left behind. Wow. That is huge. And I think it's so tough to look back at the world without being in a pandemic, right? (laughs) so often so often we think of oh man i wish we can go back i wish we can go back and now i'm thinking like man the opportunity of connecting through a different um just a different world this is the future and how can we kind of see the good in it Um, being a lot of people being remote and being with their families more often right right Um, you know people being able to you know just find different opportunities online that they didn't before, uh, different side hustles, different things, different opportunities that we can find. And if we keep looking back, we won't find it. And so I love that. I love that lesson. Yeah, absolutely. I think in pandemic right now, there's obviously some negatives and that's what our mind quickly goes to. And then we watch the news and we find more negatives, yeah. but go through and trace all the positives and make a list of it. One of the strategies I have on speak with no fear, the, the, the strategy is called imagine the worst. And people sometimes say, well, imagine the worst. I'm already doing that. That's why I have fear. <laughs> no, no, you're not imagining the worst. You're just imagining the bad. I want you to imagine the worst. What could truly happen that's bad when you're public speaking? Your family's going to leave you because you did a bad job. You're, you're, you're just going to die. I mean, if you really imagine the worst, it's that you get embarrassed, that you get rejected, and that maybe you don't get an opportunity that you wanted. And those could be pretty bad, but they're not the worst. But on the other hand, imagine the amazing possibilities that could come. You could get promoted. You could get the job. You could get an opportunity. You could move the company forward. You could impact lives. You could share your story. You could so many positives. Take that same principle of weighing out the pros and cons and put it in the pandemic. What is the worst? Okay, your family could die. Think through that. This could happen. Be aware of that. But then spend some time thinking about all the positives. And if there aren't any positives, 
think about how to create some positives. Mm-hmm. That first year in Mexico, I thought about the negative so much and I kept on wanting to go back. I don't know how much I missed out on that first year because I was so focused on going back. Well, you can't go back. The negative's there. But what is the positive? What is the positive you can create during this time? Nope. (laughs) That's the perfect way to end, Mike. That's the perfect way to end because we have to be able to find ways to create opportunities for us. We already create excuses so easily, right? It's so natural to, to create excuses. So how can we create some solutions, some, some positivities? Yeah. So with, with that being said, Mike, you have four books. So we'd love for you to kind of share a little bit about each book and then where they can find your books. Cause these are are great. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. So speak with no fear. That's available everywhere. It's on Audible. I read it on Audible. Some people like my voice. Some people don't. I accept <laughs> my voice and you should accept yours. <laughs> so everybody's just got to lean into who you are. Uh, that book is all over the internet. It's all over bookstores. You can find it. Somebody bought it at the Minneapolis airport. Love it. I've had people buy it. United Arab Emirates and Singapore and other places. So that book has been picked up all around the world. The second book was really actually just supposed to be a small little book. It's called Write to Speak. And it's actually been picked up by a lot of colleges as part of how to write a speech. So if you have to give a speech, lots of presentations, simple, repeatable system to write speeches and write presentations. The third book was uh, Lead with No Fear, actually tied with Grow Your Soul. Grow Your Soul was my... uh, my pastor book, when I was a pastor, I, I wrote down these 40 different things that you could do to kind of grow yourself. And so it was my, that was my quarantine project. So if you need a pandemic project, write a book. That's what I did. I put it all together and put it out there and released it to the world. So those are my four books. I'm writing another one right now about how to actually write, get published and promote your own book. And then I'm writing my follow-up to speak with no fear as well. So a lot of different books. Follow me at mikeacker.com. You can find a lot of the works there. I'm on Twitter. You can go on to mikeacker.com, follow up, sign up for an email list, and you can get, we try to be very purposeful so we're not spamming people. We write about one meaningful blog per week or article about what we're up to or book we suggest reading. But connect with me. I got a podcast I just launched as well. So kind of getting out there, doing some, some YouTube. Now that I'm not traveling as much, using more of the time to interact with people and and be present with people all around the world through this amazing thing called the web. Wow. That is amazing. Mike, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, man, you, you definitely added a lot of value. I, I took a lot of weight and I know our listeners took a lot of weight too. Um, you give me some uh, John Maxwell vibes. I get some John Maxwell vibes <laughs> from you. That's a, I know that's a huge compliment. Yeah. Um, But yes, I definitely appreciate you coming on. Hey, thanks, Josh. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for what you're doing with your show. And I'm glad that you're doing this, getting your voice out there, getting your story. And what an important, important overall message you got here. You got to play even though you're injured. We're huge Seattle Seahawks fans. Huge. (laughs) And so from Seattle, so we watch it. We have our gear going on. Just watching the players play, even injured all the time. I love watching Russell Wilson never has never not started a game, never not started a game for what nine years. And he just gets out there and takes care of himself and he keeps pushing forward so much of what he has going on in his mindset. 
that's a whole different topic. We can talk about. Yeah, because because <laughs> I, I just thought about I'm, I'm I'm here in Chicago, so I'm just thinking about wow, <laughs> how great would it be to have Russell? <laughs> <laughs> but man, that thanks for leaving me on a jealous note. But um, <laughs> yeah, Mike, I appreciate it. Thanks, Josh. <laughs>